0: of Colubrid and Calubroid Radio. Uh, this is a podcast dedicated to colubrids and snakes that are like colubrids, and we're going to get into this in a minute, colubroids. Uh, they don't have much love on the podcast, or in the podcast universe, and my co-host, Matt Most, and I decided that they needed it, and we're here to give it to them. So I'm Zach Loafman, uh, more on me in a minute, but my co-host here, Matt Most, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing well, and yourself? I'm doing great. So this is weird, but we're going to give it a go. So, uh, yeah. Uh, So the the million-dollar question, Matt, is why are we doing this? Why a a podcast on Colubrids? Well, I think you talked me into this, didn't you? You Yeah, yeah, I did actually do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) get a phone call Saturday. Hey, Matt, uh, what are you doing on Friday night? Nothing. Mm -hmm. And here we are. No, um, in all honesty, though, I mean, as we explore different changes in not only our hobby, but also in the realm of herpetology, I think this is a group that's been underexplored and especially in the hobby has been getting a lot more interest. And one of the things, obviously, is to make sure that we're presenting information in a positive way so that new keepers, Mm -hmm. as well as experienced keepers, can gain from those experiences of other keepers. Um, Obviously, as... We procure information. YouTube has been kind of the mm-hmm. sensational aspect. And unfortunately, there's a lot of garbage out
0: there. Yes, lots of garbage. And well, we're, we're hoping to, to alleviate that a little bit with this, I guess. Trying to, right? Yes, at least we're
1: trying to. <laughs> we're going to give it a good go. But uh, presenting information in a positive way, I think is the best way to procure information towards the hobby as well as advance our hobby more. As it seems as though since mid 80s, early 90s, when a number of these species were prolific in the hobby and then kind of dwindled away, we've lost a lot of the aspects of keeping as well as experience of setting up a scientific experiment in our own Mm -hmm. room and um, homes as well. And learning about how to justify as well as advance the actual keeping skills of species that are commonly kept but also advancing some of the skill sets of our, our keepers.
0: Yeah. And as far as the podcast universe is concerned, you know, reptile podcasts have, have proliferated exponentially, it seems in the past year or two. And with the Maria Python, uh, radio network, you know, I, I, I listen to those all the time. I spend a lot of time in the car driving from point A to point B. I know you do too. And, uh, I feel like I know far more about Marillia and Antaresia and all these different Python genera because I've got Marillia Python radio. And I, I oftentimes found myself like, wishing and, and, and hoping that there would be that same kind of format for a podcast that would cover the snakes that I absolutely love, which are colubrids. And it just kind of got to a point where I realized, quit bitching about it in your mind and just grab the bull by the horns and and, and and do it yourself. So, when it, when I kind of came up with the idea of maybe doing this, I, I talked with Eric, I talked with Lucas, who's my grad student and part of the network, and was like, "You think we could do this?" And they both were were all about it. And I, uh, the first person I thought of when it came to somebody else was you, because uh, we we share similar interests. We're we 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 have got very we got a lot of breadth between us. Uh, you have far more keeping experience. Uh, than I do. But at the same time, we both like our oddballs, but we both have corn snakes. So, you know, it's kind of the, the, I I think that this is a very natural fit uh, for the simple fact that our approaches to maintaining these animals are similar, but different. And one of the cool things about us is that we're open-minded and, you know, we have science backgrounds. um, And we'll get into that here in a minute. And, And when you're when you're raised in the you know, scientific universe, you're taught to be, remain objective and you don't obliterate someone's idea right off the bat just because you don't like it. You wait for the evidence to come in to basically say yay or nay as to whether you're going to adopt a given aspect of care into your keeping strategy. And, and that's something that we're both really big on. Uh, and, and this podcast, we hope it's going to be a, a, a vessel for evidence-based herpetoculture, which is something that we both you know, strive to do. So with the ultimate format of this, if if you're wondering, like, what's this going to be like? uh, I, you know, I'm not bowing to the pod father and and Eric and Owen, but at the same time, I've been listening to their podcast for literally ever. And I just love the format of NPR. And so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we're essentially going to do the exact same thing with this one, where we're even going to steal the same questions. I asked Eric for outlines. Uh, And the the outline we have tonight uh, is a direct result of an outline that he gave us from one of their episodes. So it's going to be the long format, 90 minutes, two hours, something in there. And we're going to basically bring on breeders. We're going to have questions uh, that the two of us are going to discuss. We're also going to have some herpetology for the sake of herpetology. We both have backgrounds in that. Uh, And we hope to make this a fun interactive place for colubrid nerds to go to because we just don't have a place to go in this particular universe so hopefully we're going to make that place uh with this so with that being said do you have anything you'd like to add to the intro before we we jump in or kind of introduce to the audience so that they know your perspective on things or did, did we cover it or where are we on that i
1: think you pretty much covered it all here zach um You know, I think one of the biggest things is just keeping an open mind as we go through this and make sure that ideas are obviously presented in the scientific format of presenting an idea, testing that out, and then coming up with those conclusions based upon that hypothesis that's been proposed. I think that's something that's often the generalized aspect of this hobby. Sometimes we lend ourselves to believing that a care sheet is the best way to Mm. roll with. And for a number of animals we're really not advancing the species, but rather we're sustaining that. And I think we're we're going to get into that a lot in, in this realm of colubrids too as well and explore that too as well,
0: because there's a lot of information that is missing. Um, yes, absolutely. And you, you hear a lot of people complain and, and, and for lack of a better word, bitch about care sheets, but then you, you don't oftentimes hear an alternative proposed, uh, or or an outline of a of, of approach proposed for people that are reliant on care sheets and that's one of the things that we hope to do with this is kind of dig into details and and just really kind of when we have a, a guest on and they are the keeper or the breeder of a, of a weird obscure colubrid or king snakes corn snakes w- those kind of nitty-gritty little details are what we're all about with this uh because once you get that information and you have it in your toolbox that serves as that evidence to basically, uh, shot your, shoot your husbandry methodology into the, you know, future. And one of the things you're not going to hear here here is, well, I've always done it that way. So that's the way I'm going to do it. Um, because at any point in time you can learn something new. And when you learn that new little nugget, if you're willing to adapt, you're, you're keeping maybe better. You might end up getting more eggs. You might not lose as many neonates. If you learn, uh, some new technique and you're willing to change the way you do things. So that's what we're all about here. And yeah, so that's basically our introduction to our introduction. So now I'd like to address one aspect of this, which is first and foremost, uh, why or, or how did you get into, reptiles we're going to kind of we're already bucking the outline here yeah i think it's good for us to kind of get into our backgrounds before you know we get into some science and stuff like that
1: yeah definitely um so i was raised in a suburb of chicago and during the time there was a lot of new animals coming in both from madagascar africa and as any child we all explore the aspect of dinosaurs we enjoy going to museums zoos and being in that realm of chicago itself lended Mm -hmm. itself to a lot of scientific um beauty and joy because you had natural history Mm -hmm. museum science industry you had both brookfield as well as lincoln park zoo and we used to go to the museums and explore that and i think like many people in this hobby were attracted not only to reptiles initially but to dinosaurs. And then we look at the evolutionary development of these reptilia and how they're actually transformed into that. And at the same point in time, you started to see a lot of things being brought into the hobby. Uh, Philippe DeVoggio writing the white pamphlets of Mm care. I love their number. But that's when we started to really explode from my perspective, the, herpetocultural aspect of this hobby but bringing it even more forefront was growing up in an area where a lot of pet stores were developing but at that same point in time probably one of the well not the first but one of the more mainstream in the chicagoland area was chicago reptile house nice and obviously at that i mean you saw so much stuff coming in from madagascar Um, you saw huge monitor lizards, a lot of stuff that we don't see anymore in that type of aspect and being in a close vicinity to Chicago reptile house, um, was always an adventure, not only because you had to get feeders if you had Uh some sort of reptile or amphibian, but, uh, my grandmother, I, I grew up in a single family home and my grandmother lived with us and she always procured the aspect of if you want to take care of something responsibly, you need to read and educate yourself accordingly. And in that aspect, um, before I would actually purchase any sort of animal or setup, I actually built up quite the library of Philippe's Mm -hmm. uh, documentation, as well as some of the first eco books too, as well that were published at that same time and learning about the animals and looking back at some of those things, You start to even question some of the new keeping skills and old keeping skills of Mm -hmm. how things were done. You know, obviously technology has changed drastically. I mean, we're looking at new developments in lighting, heating, and some of those things we didn't have that at that point in time, you had regular heat bulbs that were used for dome lighting Mm -hmm. in, in painting situations. But that was kind of the pinnacle aspect of the reading, learning about the animals. I mean, even on weekends um, at that point in time, uh, my uncle lived very close too, and we would dissect frogs on a Saturday outside to learn about <laughs> anatomy. So it was bringing everything more full circle too as well, because my interests and in really kind of the realm of graduate school for myself was actually biomechanics and no it cool. kind of brought everything full circle because there were so many interesting aspects of keeping animals. Like how is a chameleon able to shoot their tongue out? How are they able to capture prey? Um, there was just a lot of questions and it brought those um, questions to full circle in learning about the natural history of the animal. Because at that point in time, I wasn't interested in breeding the animals. I was yep. more interested in Collecting, learning, um, trying to advance my hobby skill set, because at that point in time, you know, bearded dragons were a thousand dollars a piece. Yeah, that's they weren't insane. really. <laughs> <laughs> especially when you think about it, because they're probably one of the highest number of animals bred worldwide. Oh, without question, bulk. yeah. And you know, even. And I feel bad for a lot of the younger keepers now because I'm sure you remember getting Glades Herp uh, wholesale priceless in the mail. And you'd be like, Mm -hmm. wow, you can get tree frogs from Africa, Mm -hmm. South America, all that stuff. Um, And every month you'd be waiting for that priceless to come in the mail or look at. And, you know, even hearing some of the stories uh, specifically from what I would consider veteran keepers in the hobby now. You know, even hearing about some of the old shows, they're not like what the reptile shows are today. No, they're definitely
0: not. One. Yeah. You know,
1: I mean, I would love to go back in time and go to like one of the shows where they had it at a hotel and they got monkey tail skinks hanging off the window. Yeah, that's insane. <laughs> or pulling no. open dresser drawers and new species uh, being discovered and identified and nothing available on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, even in terms of that, a lot of information wasn't around. So it was really about exploring the not only natural history of the animal, but also geographically learning about those mm-hmm. areas. And that brought in a lot of context, too, as well, in terms of learning about cultures, learning about a number of things that really kind of brought it full circle, too.
0: Yep. Now, I had a, a similar background. I, I I was an epic dinosaur nerd. Uh, yep. Yep. Absolutely huge. My museum, so I grew up in in the northern panhandle, West Virginia, which is that itty bitty little bit of West by God that's sandwiched between Ohio and Pennsylvania. And the the closest big city to me is Pittsburgh. So my museum that I went to and literally was my birthday present from my parents for at least, I don't know, five or six birthdays was we would go up to Carnegie Museum of Natural History and see the dinosaurs yeah. there. And, you know, nerdy shout out to Carnegie. They have the type specimen of Tyrannosaurus Rex. So I got to, you know, see that when I was five through 10 and and it absolutely made my, you know, little universe anyway. um, But I was, my background with, with keeping is kind of interesting. I had a grandfather that was notorious for showing up with uh, coffee cans in the late eighties and early nineties that would have some random creature in them. Uh, And we had praying mantises pickerel frogs, things like that. But the the first herp that I kept was a box turtle that my grandfather plucked off of the road in Ohio. Obviously, we'd only be doing that now, but back in the day, things were different. And uh, we came up with the original name of Boxy, the box turtle. But I kept Boxy for, I think, about a year or two. And Boxy then elevated to knoll's. And I made the switch from dinosaurs to reptiles in third grade. I actually remember... When I did it, because I was sick and tired of just reading about the dinosaurs all the time, I wanted to actually focus on something I could go and find or see. And you could see the lizards. so I, I did a hard you know stage left, the lizards and 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 basically, natural history has been my game. It was my game before I knew natural history was a thing. Um, and so I went to college where I teach. Uh, at that time, it was West Liberty State College. Now it's West Liberty University. And I got my undergrad there, had a wonderful advisor who was a snake guy, uh, Mr. Gordon. And, you know, the first copperhead that I caught, I I collected it and it lived in his living room until it dropped babies. And then we let the mom and the babies go and we kept one of them, which ultimately became the only venomous snake that, well, I've kept two, Uh, one of two venomous snakes that I had, but I didn't really get into herpetoculture until I was in college. Uh, My mother would not let me have a snake. Um, the, the infamous bit of Loafman family lore is that when I was getting ready to graduate high school, mom said, uh, I will either get you a Jeep Wrangler or a, or a snake. And I said, well, I'm definitely taking the snake. Uh, I kind of knew she was bluffing, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there was like no hesitation. And my first snake was the obligatory corn snake. Mine wasn't a little worm, it was an adult. Um, so my initiation into legit herpetoculture the way I like to think about it in the late 90s was with that corn snake and the herp show that I always used to go to was the all Ohio reptile show in Columbus it was a monthly show it was one of the first I think it was the first rotating monthly show or something of that ilk and and like you said I remember going to that show the first time and my mind was it wasn't blown it was obliterated because I saw all these animals that I had read about in books and, and I was seeing things that like, like I held zoos in high regard until I went to that show. And the first Matamata I saw, uh, I was just like, oh my God, that, like, is, is that thing real? You know, I've, I've seen these my entire life in books um, and, and here it is. And so through college, you know, I had all manner of, of things. And at that point in time, it was absolutely keeping, it wasn't breeding. And then I went on and I decided that I was going to pursue natural history as a career. So I... Went and uh, did graduate school. I Did graduate school. My first semester was at Florida Tech in Melbourne, and and uh, I just got married. And my wife and I moved down to Florida, and we lasted one semester. Turns out that hillbillies like me don't do well in that flat open space that's known as Florida. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, culturally it wasn't a good fit, but biologically it was amazing. And and I, sent. I think I herped every other night. Uh, road cru- road cruising, doing all that kind of stuff. And I knew the fit wasn't good for me, so I bounced, and I, I ended up getting my master's degree in a herpetology lab at Marshall University, uh, and as you'll soon learn, or you'll, you'll hear about in future episodes, my, my thesis was supposed to be on eastern hognose snakes in West Virginia, and I truly got humbled. They kicked my ass. Uh, we, The other graduate students and I put in over 1,000 hours before we found one, um, and that doesn't, you know, you can't get a degree studying one individual snake. Um, even though I still consider that to be the best snake I've ever found. Um, but, uh, ultimately I got my master's degree and I studied how reptiles and amphibians move into mine lands when the, when we're done taking coal out of the mountains. And it was kind of an interesting, uh, venture for me. Turns out like snakes I don't want to say they benefit from it, but they definitely move into the disturbed habitats because they can bask. But things like box turtles, they would get caught out in the open and actually cook on the surface of the mine. It was kind of crazy. Uh, but anywho, then I bounced from you know graduate school. And my wife and I decided we were going to come home. So we came back to Wheeling, um, where we live currently. And I was teaching at the nature center that I uh, worked in immediately after high school with my you know fancy graduate degree. And then West Liberty called and said, hey, do you want a job here? And I said yes, please, and jumped all over that. And at first, I wasn't going to get my doc, and then I was told, uh, basically, get the doctorate or you're fired in two years. So by that point, I had made a transition to ads, and you know, I, that's what I study now. The herpetology job market was saturated. Nobody studies ads. If you're sitting there thinking he studies ads, yeah, there's a reason because you're thinking that. And since you know, I did that, it's kind of the whole. Big fish, small pond thing, and it worked out really well. And I ended up getting my doc with that. And then in 2016 is when my life changed. Actually, technically, 2015, we hired a guy named Dr. Joe Greathouse who came in and said, Hey, let's start this zoo science major. I was like, What the hell is a zoo science major? Um, and it turns out there's a major that prepares people to work in a zoo. And uh, I was all about it. We've got a zoo. I worked in it in college right down the road, less than 10 minutes away. So There were only a handful of these programs across the country. When you're a small school, you're always looking for a niche. And so we we put together that major, and he was supposed to run it. And then (laughs) he did such a good job that they offered him the directorship of the damn zoo. So when you do that, it's kind of like, well, crap, who's going to run this? And everybody kind of turned and was like, you're going to do it, Zach. So I got thrust back into the world of animal husbandry, and my only comfort zone was herpeticulture. And I basically told everybody, if I'm going to be running the major boots on the ground guy at the, at the university and we're going to have an animal collection, it's going to be herps. And I got no resistance. So then I ended up getting the dream job that like every herp keeper dreams of, which is they basically like my university said, all right, build an animal collection. So I've been doing that basically for the past five years. And now fast forward. We have a graduate program. I've got graduate students doing herpetoculture research for their thesis degree. I'm currently building, or I'm not building, but our wonderful maintenance peeps are building a gigantic water monitor enclosure across the hallway from me. And we have over 200 individual herps, excluding babies. If you throw in the neonates we have had hatched this year, I think we're somewhere between 350 and 500 reptiles are in this building right now with me. So it's been quite the ride. I I enjoyed the ride. Uh, But when you do this act, you know, do this job, you end up with this thing called imposter syndrome. And I didn't really have imposter syndrome. I was just trying to infiltrate the zoo world and you got to get street cred. So the way I got street cred is I just started writing and, um, and, and, you know, I put out a couple articles and I'm writing a book right now, which we'll talk about later. And yeah, I've, I've, I've absolutely loved being thrown back into herpetology and herpetoculture again. It, it was, I wasn't expecting it, but I'm glad it happened. So that's kind of how I got to where I am. And that was my introduction to podcasts podcast because there was nothing, the level of detail I was looking for to create classes that I teach and this stuff, I couldn't find it in, in written word. Um, and so I started listening to Merlia Python Radio, the herpetoculture podcast, you know, Animals at Home, all the different podcasts that are out there and, and and found out that this was a beautiful vehicle for getting information at the level that I wanted it. So that's been that was a massive inspiration for why and why you and I are doing this right now is to just basically do this for the Colubrids.
1: Well, and, you know, for a lot of those that are in high school or even looking at pursuing a career in this realm, not only from a keeping side, but also studying herps or going into ichthyology. I think a lot of people don't understand how hard it is now to work (sighs) with live animals at a higher education standpoint, Um, especially having gone through it just like yourself. I mean, we're kind of hindered in some aspects because we're not doing things with mice or rats Yes, and and looking at that sort of um, vertebrate for uh, different scientific research. So usually when we're at a university level, it's like, well, this guy wants to bring in snakes or this mm-hmm. guy wants to work with lizards. But not only that, um, I think it might even be important from your perspective, even for those interested to maybe even identify like how hard it is to work with iacocks and stuff like that for live animal
0: research. Um, yeah, people people think that you can just pick up the snakes if you're out of college and start studying them. But like all things, there's a bureaucracy and hoops you got to jump through. And the good thing about my university is that we we absolutely do that because it's it's a necessary evil. It makes sure that you're not harming or hurting the animals, and it kind of covers your butt in case anybody were to come after you. But my school has been really good about attempting to streamline that and not let it get in the way of actually getting things accomplished. But at the same time, kind of keeping everybody honest. But at bigger schools, oh my gosh, it's 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 absolutely insane. So. Yeah, but gonna... I, I
1: remember doing my master's at Loyola and I almost wasn't able to finish it because mm-hmm. there was always
0: questions about what was going on. Yeah, it's it's a nutty world, bureaucracy kills productivity. <laughs> but we're not gonna go down that rant because I could no, go no, for no. about five hours on that one. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so no, I just think it's interesting because a lot of people would think, well, I can just go to school and study this mm-hmm. where yes. there's a lot more stuff that goes into
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's kind of our backgrounds. So one of the things I'd like to talk about right now is the, the name of the podcast because it, it's Calubrid and Calubroid radio. And, and there's a reason why we're using that word Calubroid. There's a good chance. Some people are like, what the hell is a Calubroid?" Well, uh, you know, I teach two herpetology classes and I have to do things on the level and we have to make sure we're teaching the students the correct. the the correct thing and the reality of it is when we say the word colubrid there's this kind of perspective that that is basically any snake that is not a boa a python um elephant trunk snakes or you know worm snakes things like that and then a whole bunch of really kind of weird obscure things and and there or you know it's not a fixed front fang snake something like a a cobra mamba crate uh, viper rattlesnake whatever but the reality of this is that the family Colubridae, as it's historically been known, was this kind of dumpster fire of taxonomy. Basically, if you weren't any of those snakes that we, we just discussed, you were thrown into this family Colubridae up until about a decade ago. And it, what many people don't realize is that a decade ago, what was historically referred to as the Colubridae, there were some really uh, massive... Papers that just haven't kind of infiltrated herpeticulture for some odd reason. And they were the scientists that were doing this work were trying to infiltrate and, and add reason to all these kind of typical snakes, the so called colubrids. And what they ultimately ended up finding, depending on whether you're what we call a lumper, which is basically you're very conservative taxonomically, or you're a splitter, which means you're, you're willing to accept change more readily. That's the way I like to describe splitters because I. Might be one myself, um, (laughs) is that it became very apparent that what we call a colubrid is is really just limited to the rat snakes, the milk snakes, the pine snakes, crebos, racers, whip snakes, um, whip snakes in North America, and then things like kukri snakes in Asia, uh, wolf snakes, things like that. And that all these other animals are actually members of their own family. So when we talk about garter snakes, water snakes, keelbacks, those are all now, you know, people use the word natricid in the hobby, but what I don't think they know what they're, what that means necessarily all of us. Some people absolutely do. But anytime you add the suffix id to a word, you're basically implying that that is a family of snakes. So the colubridae is a family of snakes, and garter snakes, water snakes, keelbacks, they're all natricids, which is the nat- natricity. So, and and things like hognose snakes. Everybody talks about hognose snakes as a type of colubrid. They're not a colubrid. They're in their own unique family, totally different from colubridy, massively different evolutionarily. They're in this family we call the dipsatidae, If you are a splitter and adopt that taxonomy, um, so the the proper terminology for these other families. Mm-hmm is you would add the, the suffix oid to the word because oid just simply means to take the shape off. Uh, and we're going to go with that. There's another way taxonomically. We're not going to go down that path because everybody's going to be bored to death. But <laughs> basically, the suffix oid means the form of a colubrid. And using the word colubroid, you can totally say garter snakes, water snakes, killbacks, or colubroids because they have the same basic body plan of a, of a corn snake, kind of. Um, Things like hognose snakes, false water cobras, uh, museranas, baron's racers—those are all those dipsadids, dipsadid family, dipsadid. But they're calubroids because they have that body plan of a colubrid. So we decided to make our title scientifically accurate. I couldn't just go with colubrid radio. You couldn't either. So we we, we came up with <laughs> colubrid and colubroid radio. And you know, our whole goal here is to teach. So uh, with, with that being said, we we can't we can't sorry it's it's a hill a nerdy hill i'm gonna die on but we're gonna go with the word colubroid because every time i see people talk about my favorite colubrid is a hognose snake i don't understand why but a little part of me dies like (laughs) just i die in that (laughs) moment i'm long dead resultant of that so anyway uh so that's the, the the reason or justification behind our name um and you know you can always educate people. And when we say educate, that's not like correcting in a bad way. Don't walk up to whoever and be like, ah, you're saying it wrong. But that's not what we're saying. We're just simply throwing it out there into the ether so that people can pick that up and adopt it. Uh, because one of the issues that herpetoculture has, and, and I know this, you know, being in the universe that I dwell in, is that every now and then we do have a credibility issue. And, and people are, are, you know, they, people move in, regulations pop up. And if you're able to talk to that person that's making the regs in an educated way, you're going to make an impact because then they're going to realize, oh, you know, this isn't some crazy guy with 15 gaboon vipers, you know, living in his 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 garage. Not that there's anything wrong with that if that happens to be you, but be careful. Uh, (laughs) But um, you know, this person actually understands it. And the people that are are making those decisions, a lot of them are the people that I work with, being a conservation biologist. And I know I'm able to make inroads with, with people here in my state because they know I know what I'm talking about. So uh, that's just something that can kind of help all of us as if we actually kind of adopt and try to utilize the, the science in a, in, a, in a way and not just blow it off. Because uh, if you do that, um, you're not really doing yourself
1: any favors. No, and that's something mm-hmm. you and I, we've even talked about mm-hmm. as, as we advance in this hobby as well as in the... Scientific methods, we're going to find a lot more about oh, a number of these families um, mm-hmm. looking at it not only from morphology, but also from a genetic aspect. And a lot of things are going to change
0: mm-hmm. as long as there's absolutely.
1: scientific backing for a number yes. of these aspects. And but, that's but,
0: sometimes the hard part. Oh, yeah, it, that's that's the hard part. and And it and I'm not saying that everybody has to go start reading journal articles because you can't. Or, so you can, but like you, you don't need to. That'll put many of you, including myself, to sleep. I've been doing it for all summer long. And today was a struggle getting through the papers I was reading. Um, but at the same time, yeah, don't let it intimidate you. you. You can do it, but it is what it is. So that's kind of my my stance on that. And we're going to do everything we can to throw out fun facts and new information to people. From the world of, of herpetology and the world of herpetoculture. Um, and, and herpetoculture has a lot of good to do for the science of herpetology. A lot of these animals, especially obscure colubrids, which seem to be making a bit of a comeback right now, which is pretty awesome. We, we don't know anything about their biology. When you read uh, about the life history, biology of many different snake species, they basically have a name and people have described them. But we don't know how many babies they have. We don't know if they, uh, for some taxa, we don't even know if they lay eggs or have live birth. I mean, that seems very straightforward. We don't, we don't have that information and, you know, I'm going to totally give you know, Pat Matt on the back here. Cause you've got your, is it the red stripe snakes, the African guys? Mm-hmm. Am, am yeah, I right? The red stripe. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which, which you brought in and, and you want to talk about what you did with that? Because that's pretty. Well, phenomenal. Even,
1: you know, even talking <laughs> about that even too, in general is, <laughs> I mean, you look at Messenger's book. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. even talking with Messenger and working with Kevin on it, you know, as he even noted, a lot of that information from the captive husbandry side isn't noted. Um, Yeah. You won't find that in journal articles. You won't find that anywhere. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the more interesting aspects, I think, from the herpetocultural side and scientific realm is you do see that balance and that necessary Uh, working together to actually Mm -hmm. fit that information. Um, But I mean, working with those red and black, I mean, a lot of people think of Africa as, you know, 88 to 90 degrees, very um, hot area. But I don't think a lot of people will actually take the time to look at Africa and then realize that there are different aspects of temperature, gradient, rainforest, savannas, and you are going to see different temperature changes throughout a number of those areas, as well as looking at the um, watching an animal, setting them up properly, and monitoring and adjusting accordingly to watching that specific animal, because a lot of things can actually change drastically by, you know, creating an experiment like that where there mm-hmm. is no information. But one of the things that we've faltered in some aspects in this hobby is. Like you mentioned, I mean, care sheets are good for some stuff, but for a lot of things, you have to watch the animal. Um, yes. That's why for a number of things, I'll set animals up not only in racks, but also in cages. And that's a topic I know we'll probably bring up and mm-hmm. discuss um, throughout this because there are benefits to both sides of it, but more so monitoring animal and adjusting accordingly because we don't have that information. Um even researching, and Zach, obviously, you not, you know, too, as well, with trying to publish some natural history notes on that species. Um, I mean, just recently in a review on something that I wrote, I was asked, have I done a full literature search? <laughs> and the response I had was, yep, and it's all field herp surveys. Yeah. So there is no information. Um, and even from field herp surveys, I don't think a lot of people would think um, or guess that there is nothing related to temperature, humidity, um, foliage in area, uh, diet. None of that information is available. It's basically, no, we dug up and put (laughs) buckets in the ground to -hmm. see what fell in the bucket. We put drift fences out to see what we could capture. And so we are missing a lot of pieces of husbandry as well as number of clutch sizes a year, um, number of eggs in a clutch. And by having some of those animals in the hobby actually helps to educate not only from a hobbyist standpoint, but for the natural history of that species. Yep. And you're going to lose a lot of animals doing that. Um, which is unfortunate, but is the truth, you know? So if you are procuring or proceeding with a very rare species in this hobby, it is something that, you are going to play a numbers game Um, Mm -hmm. especially when that information isn't available because you may actually have to set up animals in different temperature zones and adjust accordingly for that yeah Uh, because i think most of the people that actually purchased those animals they lost a lot of them um i can say that even from my standpoint because i lost a lot of them and even in that um keeping of those animals you know sometimes we forget that a wild-caught animal is going to have parasites and in some reasons you may need to treat them appropriately other times an animal if the stress level is doable or something where the animal isn't dehydrated going downhill they can naturally live with some of those parasites and do well but working with that specific species and bringing them to veterinary care came to find out that there was a new type of parasite that had no antibiotics for it Mm -hmm. and they weren't treatable. And this is actually something that is actually a big issue right now and is actually going through some snake farms in Florida where it's actually killing off entire collections due to a parasite um, that actually is transmitted not only through the um, fecal matter itself of the animal, but, when you think about it, that animal would then potentially be further infected because we're not keeping them in a sterile environment or anything of that nature. And sometimes husbandry falters in that way, but it's not just the means of water or defecation in there, but the parasite can actually go through the epidermis or skin of the actual animal and continue to reinfect it. So Mm. a lot of that information, not only from you know, the natural history of them, but now we're learning more about parasites too. Mm -hmm. And how can we actually grow and learn more from that? And even sending samples and providing specimens to a parasitologist at Purdue, they were able to advance some of that and look at things that can actually kill that parasite because at the end of the day, it's going to help everyone at the standpoint. Um, And even from that, you know, you start to not only test your keeping skills, but also your biological protection protocol for your (laughs) other aspects of collection. Um, something you and I, we've talked Mm -hmm. about a ton because in this hobby, I think a lot of people forget about important aspects of cleanliness and quarantining, um, proper water diet because, you can lose your collection overnight if you don't follow strict protocols, especially if you have a
0: large collection. Yeah. If, if you have a large collection and you're not using quarantine and you know, quality control and QAQC or whatever you want to call it procedures, you're just, it's it, you are looking down the inevitable barrel of a hypothetical gun. Something will inevitably pop up at some point. Nobody's safe. Um, a lot of people know me because I've been on podcasts talking about crypto. And crypto is definitely something we will talk about at a later point in time, dedicated episode because Cryptosporidium uh, serpentus is a, a parasite that is in particularly lethal to colubrids. And unfortunately, I got to experience that And the the this here at the university. And the, the species that it wiped out first were corn snakes. And if you think about think of all the people that have corn snakes, that's a beginner snake. Um, so it wasn't some, you know far off, tropical, crazy, imported animal, this was an example of a parasite that was brought into the collection from one of the students and unintentionally, obviously, transmitted to one of our corns. And the next thing you know, we lost a bunch of colubrids. Uh, Happy to say that we have completely contained that. And we've been multiple years now without uh, crypto, but, you know, that that gets back to the kind of care that we're going to be promoting here, which is we just want to you know, throw stuff out into the ether for you all and, and enable you to kind of elevate your husbandry. Cause that's what we're, we're all about. So, okay. Well, we got some questions here for each other. So well, uh,
1: moving on to a lighter <laughs> subject.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's <laughs> get away from the gloom and doom and just kind of get <laughs> into some fun stuff. So my, I'm going to ask the first question. Uh, which is I'm looking at the outline and it's one of your questions. So we're scrapping the outline. Um, <laughs> we're just going to ask the damn question. Uh, so this is a fun one because there's a, as as a herpetoculturalist, we can keep turtles, lizards, you get into lizards, you got geckos, skinks, monitors, iguanas, lesser tillits, all kinds of things. And so when you hop over to snakes, obviously there's there's pythons, boids, um, and then the colubrids and colubroids. So my question to you is it's twofold and then you'll return it back to me which is do you keep anything currently that's not a colubrid and what is it and then i know the bulk of your collection's colubrids why colubrids like of all the freaking snakes that we could have i mean there's podcast after podcast about pythons nothing against that but you know why why didn't you head towards the big old boas what about the little worms of the world the colubrids and the Colubroids? uh, strikes your fancy yeah definitely well you know obviously there's a number of
1: different things crawling around here Mm -hmm. um i do have some doom boas um Mm -hmm. i do have some white lip pythons nice Um, yeah so the reason why for some of those different species that i went down the path of that is actually because i don't see a lot of them being produced anymore Mm -hmm. um white lips uh stan kind of stan grumbeck my friend down in texas he kind of talked me into working with some so we split up some animals in in both collections and part of it was the fact that we don't see them anymore in the hobby and eventually and this is something that we're seeing already as a result of covid is the number of imported animals has drastically decreased Mm -hmm. um which is part of the reason why we're seeing such a scurry in the purchasing and and sale of a number of species. And also I think what's fueling some of these prices right now is just the availability of animals. Um, That being said, I would never bring an animal here if I wasn't interested in the animal. Um, A lot of people falter from my perspective and I see it in a number of emails that I get because a lot of people will chase the monetary realm Mm -hmm. of this hobby. I wouldn't pursue the hobby for that reason because things change, things go in fads. And if you're not happy with an animal, you shouldn't pursue it. You shouldn't procure it. You really should just let it to someone else. That's going to be very interested in it because we are going to see different waves right now. Part of the um, aspect we're seeing in the hobby and another big portion of procuring this uh, proceeding with this podcast is we're seeing a huge interest in colluprits. Yes. And And it's obviously a direct result of the fact that they've disappeared from the hobby. Um, You know, even corn snakes. We're seeing a lot of corn snakes um, no longer available. Um, I do keep corn snakes here. Um, A lot of that is actually Maggie's project. I thought it would be a cool way of introducing an eight-year-old to genetics Mm -hmm. and trying to show how different um, aspects can actually influence the phenotype of an animal and how does that actually transfer through breeding and you know looking at punnett squares and trying to do that with mm-hmm. an eight year old is a little over <laughs> the eight year old's head at this mm-hmm. point in time but it, it brings an interest mm-hmm. to it. Um the big realm of keeping colubrids in general um and you know other animals in, in general is size. Okay. Um, I've always kept with a size differential because big animal hmm. means a lot of time. Um, and with my job, I travel for work and it can sometimes be a challenge in terms of maintenance with those aspects. Um, I've primarily focused off on the Asian rat snakes, obviously. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with their natural history, a lot of information not being available And I I think that was very interesting work with Kevin on and learn even more from my sake, but the natural color of Mm -hmm. those animals is just outstanding. And I think we're going to learn a lot more. Obviously Zach, we're working on something there too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot more about locality. I think we're going to learn a lot more in terms of how animals are identified and, and, That to me is very interesting because there's a lot of unknown and that's what actually fuels my passion for a number of those different colubrids, especially Asiatic animals is there's a lot of things that haven't even been explored anatomically on a Mm -hmm. number of those species. Um, Some things may never be explored. Some things may never um, be explained in the way that we think. Um, But from my background, like I was saying, I mean, my educational aspect was uh, biomechanics, so I was always interested <laughs> in how things worked and functioned in a means to um, reiterate why animals are doing that, and that's what I've explored, and that is a big portion of why I keep a number of colubras, not only off a of size, but the natural history of the animal, the color of the animal, um, now that being taken into account... I. I did keep David's rat snakes here, and they're a brown snake. Yep. <laughs> but, but they're a pretty badass brown snake. <laughs> they are. Um, mm-hmm. I remember even uh, procuring those, and the offering group was an adult male and two hatchling females. Oh my and goodness. when you talk about working with people on collaborative projects, and I'm, I'm sure this will come up in our discussions with. Um, other people as we bring more people Mm -hmm. on. But working with people on projects can sometimes be extremely challenging because Mm -hmm. sometimes people forget the nature of why we're doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes we have to make those unfortunate phone calls of death or things of that nature. And for some of those new species in the hobby, they're not cheap. No. Um, So I remember calling Stan probably like a month into having that group and the adult male died. Now you're stuck with two hatchling females, Uh, you know? um, But like Stan always said, we'll work our way through it, but it was always very interesting to not only on colubrids themselves, but like white lips, we, you know, trying new things, exploring new aspects because they're not readily bred in captivity. Um, Loxasemis or another yep. species that I have here, uh, the Mexican burrowing python. And those were actually gifted to me by Stan too as well, um, just to try to increase not only the captive population, but to ensure that I had some at my house, he had some at his house, um, because if something ever happened to one person's collection, at least there was a backup Yep. in that sense. So that's, um, that's a smart way of doing it. Yeah, and and that's the fun part. I mean, Clint and I, uh, Clint Bartley from Bartley Reptiles, we've explored that. We work on a number of projects together, too, and it's fun. Yeah, I think that's the the cool part with doing stuff like that is you can enjoy and talk about your passion even further. Um, You know, even, you know, some of the people that have just focused on ball pythons, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: They're not necessarily interested in the natural history of the animal um some people are very interested in the genetics of the animal which is you know awesome i mean there's a lot of stuff you can do but for some keepers if you asked them where they were found not only in terms of geographical location but where they actually live they wouldn't be able to tell you um so that's kind of what's really pushed me one way or the other um obviously my background i i worked with number of other things too i mean i I worked with venomous while i was in grad school and did a lot of um work with bruce young while i was at the university of massachusetts but when i came back to indiana i decided i would never work with venomous again (laughs) yeah uh it it kind of went that route but did pursue bear and eye um Mm which are extremely fast <laughs> <laughs> yes they are I, I have i got two of them right up there <laughs> <Yep. So. laughs> yeah but you know when we look at um colubris and culubre um there's just so much questions Yeah. so many questions that we can bring to that table and
0: things that and that's what really brings me to that those groups yeah is that, that's just it That's that's what what brought me to them i have um and a lot of people that really know me know this about me, but I have a little bit of biology ADD. Like I, I thrive in diversity. That's what I like. Uh, and with the boas and the Pythons, there's nothing wrong with them. In fact, uh, I keep quite a few of them. Um, here in my office at work, I have a wall of uh, poplin carpets or IJs, whatever you want to call them. Um, I also have, I'm a, Big boa guy. I've always liked boas, and I, I I like the locality and the kind of old taxonomy of boas. So I have short-tailed boas, which aren't recognized anymore taxonomically. But um, Amarilli. Uh, I didn't and then, know you had those. Yeah, yeah, they're they're right over there. I'm raising up a pair of those. Uh, mm-hmm. And my my favorite of all the boas, which I have at my house, are yellow anacondas. I'm the only. You know, I, I have an affinity for things that live in water. That is a common theme. I mean, crayfish live in water, for crying out loud. And there's really not a better water snake um, if you, than an anaconda, but I'm not going down the green anaconda path. That's a little bit nuts. Uh, but I love my yellow annies. They're they're kind of – they are also fit the bill for me because I also like aggressive snakes. So uh, – and they're not cuddly. We'll just leave it at that. Um, and then I also have short-tailed pythons. So at my house, I have uh, bloods and Sumatrans. So – it's not just colubrids for me, but they're definitely the bulk of my collection. And I love the oddballs. Th- that Those are definitely the, the species that I've always been kind of gravitated, gravitate towards. So my collection is primarily um, com- made up of the Dipsatids. So much so, um, I've become so infatuated with those snakes over the past five years. Like I, I started off sitting on my couch trying to figure out what we were going to get for zoo science. And then I wanted to have my own special little project. That was mine that I could maybe do some husbandry work with or something. And uh, that's where of course, lots of people know me for my false water cobras and they live in water. They're kind of the ultimate water snake at the time. I thought, yeah, we're not going to go down that path. They're venomous. I've now subsequently learned they are, they do have Duvernoy's secretions that are significant, but at the same time they're not as bad as people made them out to be um and i basically got them loved them and then well if i like these i probably would like tricolor hognose snakes so i i picked up those which aren't related to north american hognose snakes guys but everybody thinks that they they're like basically the same thing they're they're distant they're in the same family but they're they're definitely not the same lineage so you know and that nerdy evolutionary history and natural history and biology. I like that. So it's really cool to have at my house, a tricolor hog in my left hand and then a Western hog in my right hand and know, you know, this is convergent evolution right here. Like, you know, and I get to see it and I get to interact with it. Um, so my interest with the colubrids is definitely with the diversity. And it's with the fact that you can absolutely make little discoveries when you're working with them. Um, because a lot of these taxa just showed up in herpetoculture within the past decade. Uh, and we're just now figuring out how to, how to breed them. Um, and, and I love that part of it. So for me, and for some
1: of that it's keeping it alive.
0: <laughs> yeah. Just freaking, you know, Oh, I know all about that. I I'm going down that the path. You went with the red stripe snakes with, um, uh, typhilus, the, the velvet swamp snake, I think is the common name. And, uh, I love those things. They're beautiful, the bright green little glubroid that you can keep in like a 20 gallon long. Um, and unfortunately they're not established in herpetoculture at all. And I just have been nabbing everyone that I can get my hands on and I get them established. They're doing great. And then I check on them one day and half of them have been dead. <laughs> I have no idea why they're eating. They put on mass, you know, uh, and that's just like you were talking about that. That's the, the, the joy, uh, if you will, of, of a challenging taxa. And that's the other reason why I like colubrids is they're very, they're, they're just challenging. But at the same time, I keep king snakes because I got really tired of dealing with the challenges all the time. And within the past couple of months, I kind of reevaluated what I have at my house, not necessarily here at the university. But I was like, I want something that's going to eat. Every time I offer a mouse, And if the heat lamp turns off, it's not going to be dead and it's essentially bulletproof. So locality Kingsnakes are something that I've gotten into and I'm really, really uh, enjoying. And so that kind of biology ADD that I have, uh, it, it just jives perfectly with, with Colubrids. And then being the nerd that I am, I love evolutionary history and systematics and all that kind of stuff. And it's just really cool to have these different animals. And, and, and if you, 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 go past the paint job and actually learn about the biology and the evolution, it, it becomes really cool. Like uh just using North American colubrids, we've got pine snakes, pitchophis, the milk snakes, king snakes, lampropeltis, and the rat snakes, pantherophis. And 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 these three different genera are very similar. You know, they're all eaten rodents when or birds when they reach adulthood, but at the same time they're they're very different evolutionarily. And, and that aspect of that, of, of, of knowing that and keeping that and seeing that, I love it. And, and that's basically the main reason why um, I've, I've gotten into the Colubrids. And recently, you know, just to talk a little bit about my collection, then we'll kind of bounce on to what your collection looks like. Um, I think it was in April or May, I realized that I was, went down a rabbit hole I shouldn't have gone down where I had some animals that I was, I just kind of had them. And I didn't know why, Like they were there, and I bought them all the way back in 2016, 2017 when I was starting. And I don't know if it's because I thought they were trendy or I thought I should like them, but I kind of had this point where I picked up some Florida water snakes. Uh, They were given to me for free at the Columbus show, and I brought them home and I set them up in a naturalistic setup. I mean, these are you know some people would consider these things cobra food. They're like literally thirty bucks. at at the show but these things they reminded me why i do this and why i like this and why i love this because they utilize that enclosure they bask like they would bask out in a swamp in georgia um they were really responsive to me every time i would walk into the room you'd see their little heads pop up and i realized like i want to keep animals that are like that Uh, i don't have hundreds of animals at home i have I don't know, 40 to 60. And, and some of those animals are just an extension of the zoo science collection here. Cause we do a lot of the quarantine at my house just to get them completely out of this building in case there's something uh, wrong with them. So my collection, as far as colubrids are concerned, it's, it's, it's these oddballs and it's things that I like. And I, it, and right now it's, it's those locality king snakes. It's these random South American dipsatids And then I've I've just done a swan dive into the nature scene pool. Um, I've gotten several different species and subspecies of garter snakes and nerodia uh, and nerodia are my favorite North American snake. I'm that guy. So uh, the fact that I got them at home and they're, they're, you know, raising, I produced Florida water snakes for the first time this year. And I will say one thing, we will talk about the benefits and the downfalls, to naturalistic enclosures. When a broadband water snake has 30 babies in a naturalistic enclosure, you get to go herping in your office every night because they just basically dispersed into all the rocks and crevices and the cork tubes and the plants. It's like, geez, it took me like three weeks to get them all. So yeah, that you know, I get real excited when I talk about this stuff, Kish couldn't tell. Um, but no, that's what my collection looks like. Now, my collection sits at about at home. I don't know the exact number, it's between 40 and 60. I'm actually downsized a bit. But your numbers a little bit higher than mine, so it is. Let's address that. <laughs> so, so, what are you keeping, and 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 what's your head count at?
1: Well, <laughs> sometimes I have to come back to real world and start to mm-hmm. think. Um, wow, how do I balance time, life, and mm-hmm. maintain a proper collection? Um, mm-hmm. This year, just within the past couple of months, I've already hatched out, I want to say probably 400 animals. Yeah. That's uh, 10 times mine, (laughs) which is insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the challenges when you do large collections is making sure that you can properly balance it because you Mm -hmm. don't want to sacrifice quality. Yep. Um, The aspect in terms of number of breeders that are here, It is right around 200 animals. Okay. And last year I ended up because this is kind of the hard part in this hobby is maintaining and learning to hold back animals. (laughs) Yeah. And last year I ended up holding back around 65 animals. Okay. Just because of the the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. And with that being said, you know, within the group, here that's just animals here and i plan to hold probably another 40 to 50 animals back this year oh my goodness but that being said it is a heck of a lot better to do joint projects with people Mm -hmm. because you never lose the animals um which is awesome being able to have friendships like that yeah but within the group that is here i work with a number of black rat snake morphs uh, Maggie has mm-hmm. her collection of corn snakes awesome. of different scaleless, het scaleless, normals, okaties. Um I am very passionate about file snakes, not yes. only the forest files, but also the capensis, uh, the mm-hmm. cape file snakes. And those two species have been very important in my collection and something that I will never lose track of in this nice um just because we really don't know enough about those animals Mm -hmm. um natural history wise anatomically there's a lot of unanswered questions and obviously hundred flower rat snakes um mandarin rat snakes chinese beauties (laughs) uh the red and black striped snakes uh Different Dion's, not only locality, but also different morphs of those animals. Um, All of the porphyracea that are commonly kept in the hobby, um, which is also another one of those animals that will likely never leave from this Mm -hmm. collection. Um, Just because of the fact within the hobby, we've seen a lot of hobbyist porphyracea pop up. Mm -hmm. And you can clearly identify those animals from the true subspecies of those Uh, that also being said, rhino rat snakes, rain snakes, um, I'm missing a ton of stuff. No, uh, green bush rat snakes, uh, you know, outside of the pythons too. I mean, it's just, you have to maintain a clean collection though. Like even Mm -hmm. talking about quarantining, um, you know, I think we even talked about the three door rule. Yep. Of how do you maintain things of a nature in that aspect? Um, so it's no easy task, um, especially feeding a bunch of babies, because typically Maggie and Sydney will help me and will lay out deli mm-hmm. cups and defrost three to four hundred pinkies and put a that's pinky insane. in every deli cup, and then go across and put a baby snake in each one of them. But that's to monitor their growth, that's to monitor the feeding ap- aspect of the animal and make sure that they are properly um, feeding and growing. Yeah. And don't you have I don't know if you said it or not, but don't you have a few mandarins? I do. So mm-hmm. over the years, um, I've adjusted my collection of mandarin rat snakes to not focus on the Chinese variety that are in the hobby, but to focus more on the Vietnamese locality. Yes. Animals. Uh, more specifically, the Hong Valley Sapa and the reason why I went down that road is we are starting to see a number of, um, locality crosses of Mandarin rats next to, um, you know, we're starting to see some things that, uh, that really doesn't naturally found in the, you know, locality of the animals. And, but the reason why I went down the road of the Vietnamese is they do have the brightest coloration,
0: but yeah, they they're are stunners, also man.
1: the largest, mm-hmm. um, Cause you know, I've, I've shown pictures of six foot long mandarins. Um, I've had mandarins coming out of tubs or cages, chasing after rats and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I may go down the road just because I don't see them very often anymore. I may go down the road of breeding Patias mucosis again. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah. Cause I did breed them for several years. And they're very prolific animals, laying four to five clutches a year. But we don't see them. Um, And part of the reason I moved away from them was not only time, but also space. Um, I had some big males that were probably six or seven feet long and maybe even longer than that. And they were aggressive animals. Um, and I, I kept my patias mucosis in communities of, uh, multiple males and multiple females, mm-hmm. which always made it very interesting when feeding time came too, because nothing, uh, more enjoyable than a, uh, patias chasing after you growling.
0: Yeah, across the room. that's pretty <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> sounds like it might be a fitting animal for your collection. Mm-hmm. But... No, no, that's, that's, that, that's amazing to me. Yeah. That might have to enter the collection. <laughs> yeah. because it growls that's pretty awesome well and so. and that was
1: part of the reason i pursued them too is just because of their vocal cords if you will mm-hmm. the way that they're able to expel air and push yeah. it through and mimic a cobra um but maybe pursuing a couple of other projects here um some other things that aren't in the u.s hobby yet oh cool and so we'll see how those things kind of grow um, I'm always looking for new challenges, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and when those opportunities present themselves, sometimes new species uh, pop up that haven't been offered commonly in the hobby yet.
0: Oh, awesome. So. Yeah, my, I just kind of did my like, blah, thing that I do when I was talking about what I have, but right now at at home, what I'm working with, I have quite a few of the false water cobras. I. I did a head count and then I did another head count. I was like, there's no way. And then the third head count I was like, all right, that's happening. You might have a problem. But right now I'm sitting at, I believe it's, it's at 6.8. So I have 14 of them and those are big snakes. So I kind of keep the collection low because I found my animal. If you know, and, and we all yep. have that one snake where we're like, ah, this is it. And I was just fortunate enough to find it. So I have big enclosures. I, have a wonderful wife who was like all right the garage take it so um i keep most of my stuff uh well the the falsies have to be in pvc enclosures i'm not necessarily an- i'm not an anti rack but for those animals i am because when they defecate they they defecate multiple times a week uh, and if you don't have good airflow and you pop open that drawer you, i mean just the, the ammonia cloud that hits you you know that 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 snakes not doing well living in that environment though I do know people that do keep them in, in, in extremely large tubs, the kind of tubs you would keep um, large bloods in, and, and they've adapted the, the, the tubs. But for me, you know, it's PVC enclosures all the way. Uh, and then I have Bear and I um, tricolor hognose snakes. I think I said that. Museranas, boiruna, I uh, have some of those. Um, and then some odds and ends. I've got the, the kings. I've got Andean milks because I just like them. They're cool. That's not something you see that often either. It took me forever to actually get my hands on them. Um, I wish my male would grow a little bit more uh, because right now, if I put him in with the female, he's old enough, but he would be eaten. There's no way he would survive that. Uh, and then You're like not I to take electrical tape and put it around the mouth. Like the old yeah, <laughs> I may, <laughs> I'm afraid that he'd be the female that I have is is ravenous. She comes launching out of the, the tub every time it's opened. Um, but anywho, uh, and then I like um, I have some random North American rats. I've bred for the first time this year. Slowinski's uh, rat snake used to be a species. Paper came out, made it a subspecies off of MRI. Uh, tomato, tomato depends on how you look at that that whole deal. Um, and then, like I said, uh, hogs obviously Western hognose snakes took me forever to put together a, root, a group of normal Western hognose snakes. Turns out they're not normal because I bred them for a, a student project and we're popping out albinos left, right and center. So even if it says normal, there's genes in there <laughs> that that aren't. That's OK. Um, and uh, then the nature scenes uh, we've got the the banded water snakes, broad banded water snakes, Florida water snakes, the whole complex of Neurodia fasciata. Uh, and those are a- absolutely among my personal favorites. Um, no, I love when you post the pictures of them. Yeah. Oh no, they're great. I mean, and they're the most they're they're as close to a snake dog next to the false water cobras as you can get. They're they're fantastic. Uh, and then with the garter snakes, that's kind of the new obsession. And I've been I've been toying with the idea of jumping into thamnophis. I've always liked thamnophis. Um, there's a big book that's been out forever on the garter snakes. That's what it's called. And, you know, I've had that book since I was an undergrad, a decade, and I actually read it cover to cover when I was an undergrad. So garter snakes for me have just been something where I've been trying to keep it at bay. And now I've just it's not at bay anymore. So I, I, I've recently picked up um, quite a few Oregon red spotted garter snakes. Those things are beautiful. Like they're absolutely phenomenal animals. Um, and then the, uh, the Amnophis Equus Complex out of Mexico. They're, they're awesome. So they're big it's basically if you took a North American water snake and then crammed it into a garter snake, you get these things, which are all members of the Thamnophis equus complex. So I've, I've got quite a few of um, Thamnophis equus obscurus. The I think it's Lake Chapala. I'm not good with the common names. And then um, I got another subspecies. I just have a pair of those, which is uh, Thamnophis equus Scotti. I think it's Scott's garter snake or something. I am probably got the common name wrong there, hmm. but I mean, they're just a ton of fun. And then that's pretty much it. I'm I'm I get to live vicariously through my job. So I've got this massive collection at school. I just basically have the stuff at home uh to, to raise up and everything that I have ultimately can it, it shows up here at the university in some kids project or or, or something. I'm not, you know, i not crazy, though did produce about a hundred false water cobras this year, which is <laughs> yeah. Kind of insane for a kid's thesis, and we're we're moving those out as we speak. So small but mighty versus giant, and then the way we 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 keep given the nature of our collection, that's another thing that makes us good for a podcast like this because um, we both employ multiple husbandry strategies, uh, and we both see the value in husband different husbandry strategies, which is something that I would like to to preach a bit about. But my approach to things is is I. You know at here at the university and at home the vast majority of animals are kept in pvc enclosures with mulch and hides and water uh and that's just simply because we don't have the insane number uh, of animals um but we do have racks like we the the tricolor hogs i keep are in racks uh the western hogs during the breeding season are in racks the lamp propeltis when they're being reared up are in racks, the, um, oh, I have Oreo cryptophis and Japanese rat snakes too. That's, that's, that's my, I had a huge Asian rat snake collection and it kind of all got shifted to our good friend, Justin Smith, who's inherited it. He said on a podcast, (laughs) I like Asian rats. And I was like, all right, here you go. Um, but I kept my, my Climacophora, The, the Jap rats are my, my personal favorite. I just, Love them to death. They're like the perfect size as far as I'm concerned. And then the Oreo Cryptophis, the um, I like Pulcher. Uh, which one? What's the common name for that one? I don't, uh, Union Mountain Rats, Union Mountain Rat Snakes. Yes. And I produced those for the first time this year, though I'm fairly positive I have contributed to the hobbyist Pulcher population (laughs) because they're not, they came out of the egg and I was like, huh, those are mostly Pulcher, but not quite. So, Their breeding days may be done after this year, but I can put them on my roster, check the, you know, say I I bred them and and, and move on to other things. But yeah, so that's my approach to keeping. Um, But it's all based off what's best for the animal. Um, And then there's also an aspect of, of the time I I have, because I like you, I'm an extremely busy guy. And that's part of the reason why I don't have monitors. If I had all the time in the world, I would, have a giant monitor collection i don't so i don't have monitors so the the colubrids kind of lend themselves to i want you know got to interact with them but at the same time two to three interactions a week for a short period of time is usually good enough to keep my collection you know moving forward so that's my strategy in keeping uh well to bring
1: up even like a, a funny story <laughs> off of that even Today, I was in the car with one of my customers, and we were coming back from lunch, and we started talking about different hobbies and things going <laughs> on for the weekend, and I'm like, I, I told you I breed snakes, right? And the guy was like, bro, what? Bro. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, just go on YouTube. Look, look up my name. Mm-hmm. It was, bro, you said you have like snakes, he goes, I didn't know you have this like facility in your basement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But there are animals I keep in cages. Very cool. Animals in racks. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that has to do with the well-being of the animal, um, Mm -hmm. monitoring things as respected to that specific animal and adjusting accordingly. But one thing that we don't talk about in this hobby as much in terms of racks or caging is in my basement. I actually use UVB bulbs, but also full spectrum bulbs in the recessed lighting as well. And I do have everything on light cycles too as well. Mm -hmm. So something a little bit different instead of just putting things in racks and calling it a day, um, having that full spectrum lighting as well as UVB, even in racks you still have mm-hmm. holes and you still are penetrating that cage accordingly. Um, now I take it a little bit different of an approach with using a rack. And I actually, even with, so I switched uh, models of racks and even with having holes on the top of the actual levels, I actually drill a number of holes throughout the actual tubs themselves um, just to make gotcha. sure that you're promoting airflow through it. Because one of the that we do see from people keeping racks is you'll, and I see it all the time posted on forums and that aspect of it is my animal has a respiratory infection. Your animal doesn't have a respiratory infection. Your animal can't breathe in that tub more than likely, or there's stagnant air. And now your animal has been breathing in mold and Mm -hmm. now is basically creating a boncreal infection in the animal. But even from a veterinarian care perspective, if that veterinarian isn't familiar with that, they might be treating it for symptoms of a respiratory infection and not actually treating the animal itself and continuously promoting the issue within the animal. So we'll never correct the issue itself. Um, So there are ways and means to keeping animals successfully in racks. You have to be careful. You have to adjust. Um, If anything, I think the, priority or ease of a rack is to offer higher sanitation yeah and i say that because it's a lot easier to clean a rack or a tub itself than it is to clean a full vibaria yes um and I you can know, speak to that <laughs> yeah well and it's funny too because um I mean, recently I was watching um, a podcast or a YouTube video, something about it, and it was like a Q&A, and it was about natural vivaria and setting up flora inside of that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how are you going to be able to keep up with that? Because you're going to have urates, you're going to have, a, you know, just feces- like no matter how many springtails, how many mm-hmm. bugs you put in there, there's no way you're going to be able to keep up with that.
0: Oh, uh. yeah. the, the guy who, who who's the guru of, of bioactivity was just recently mm-hmm. on a, a podcast, John Courtney Smith. And, and he was saying like, the, the idea of bioactivity is wonderful. And, it, and it, it, in herpeticulture, everybody kind of gravitated towards it thinking it's now the gold standard and that's what we have to do. And the guy that literally wrote the book on it was saying that it's great, but, it doesn't necessarily like, not everything should be kept this way because it's it's very difficult to reach that balance that you're you're trying to achieve with bioactivity and that maybe the, the gold standard should you should like learn about the biology of the animal that you are keeping and then maybe go for naturalistic uh, aspects not naturalistic one hundred percent just naturalistic aspects for instance with the tricolor hognose snakes. Yeah, those are burrowers in, in the Chaco of South America, those guys are spending a lot of time underground. So when I keep those in a tub, which I have mine in a rack, I do the same thing you did, got holes drilled in them, got light going in there. Um, but I give them about two inches of substrate in the tub and they grow like weeds and, and they're doing great. Now I know another uh, individual, he has his setup in PVC enclosures with full spectrum lighting and he talks about them basking. So, that's where the fun part of herpetoculture comes into play because I can do that that way. He can do it that, you know, his way. And then rather than flame each other, we just have a discussion and kind of figure out the, not necessarily the best way, but the way, if that makes, I don't know if I'm making sense, but you know, that's kind of what I'm getting at. So. Well, there's obviously yeah. that
1: balance, yes. right? You want to look at both sides of it, see what is advantageous, because from your standpoint of having the animal in the tub, they're likely getting more humidity and being a burrower, they're going to strive for that humidity In a cage. You're going to lose some of that balance Mm to within that. Um, But it'd be interesting also to monitor growth rates, feeding behavior, um, looking at all of those because that not only presents itself with the um, stress that the animal might actually be achieving or being exposed to And how does that animal relate from one side to the other? Because your animal being in Iraq might not have that much stress because most animals, reptiles, especially, they're isolates. They don't, they're not living in, not all reptiles are living in large communities where they're not building that social bonds. So it does promote somewhat of a a higher feeding response in some animals and it could very well be that balance because- I mean, heck, even some keepers will black out a whole terraria on the outside and but keep the animal in a glass cage. Too. yeah.
0: And then other species, you throw them in the rack, and it's it's just not gonna you're you're denying them key aspects of their natural history and and, and like an arboreal tax. if you, you if you keep spilodes in a rack forever, that's an animal that rarely is on They're on the ground, but but that's an animal that evolved to live up in the canopy. Mid story of the jungle—that's where you find them in Costa Rica and Suriname and places like that. And when you keep that thing in a for its entire existence, we got problems probably. But when you're starting the thing off, like we had a clutch hatch here in 2020, I believe it was, and they were the bitiest little bastards. <laughs> they were sassy as hell, and and if we would have kept those things in naturalistic from the very get go, I don't think it would have been copacetic they it took them all a little while but once they started eating you know they were okay but they were in their tubs um then we moved them into the uh, pvcs once they got to a certain size so you know that's all the kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about right multiple strategies not just one so
1: well and everyone's going to have their different approach and
0: it really comes down to what's best for the animal yeah so another question for you and i like this question um what do you think is a colubrid keeper challenge that colubrid keepers have that maybe other people that keep pythons, boas, monitors, geckos, is there a, a challenge specific to the colubrid keeper in your eyes? And and if so, we'll be talking about that for the duration of this podcast and bringing these kind of points up. But what do you think is, the, is something that might be a little bit more unique to colubrid keepers versus other keepers?
1: Hmm. So from that, I hear this very frequently from people that may have switched from pythons <laughs> or boas, and that is death. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people that have switched from taxes to colubrids will typically experience, from my perspective or have heard and talked to people, is a higher mortality rate. And I think part of that is... Not related to the taxa itself, but based upon the willingness to adapt and grow and Mm -hmm. learn from our skill sets. Um, Those people that have commonly made that question um, or brought up that fact, most of them want to be educated. Most of them want to learn. They want to know where their faults are and where they can succeed going forward. Um, a lot of things do relate back to husbandry as they usually do. Um, you know, talking about the false respiratory infection Yeah, as noted, you know, uh, there's a balance in keeping porphyracia. Um, a lot of people can keep them, but a lot of people cannot breed them, which I find very interesting. Um, mm. I've heard this from a number of people where, and even talking with a, a mutual friend, Rob Stone. Yeah. Um, Rob has mentioned, you know, a lot of people can keep them or they just die out of nowhere. Um, And a lot of it has to do, I think, with the relevant aspect of talking about humidity versus moisture, because I've seen people pour water directly into a tub (laughs) and you're going to build bacteria in that environment. Uh, You know, even talking about fluidity of air movement coming in and out of an enclosure especially if you have high moisture or high humidity in a cage, you're, you're going to prompt growth and bacteria growth. Um, especially if there are new parasites being brought into collections. Um, I also think that there are some very scary aspects that are being promoted in the hobby right now that aren't openly talked about. Um, and quarantine procedures are very necessary because I've heard from a number of keepers that have lost um, half, if not their whole collection because of the fact that they didn't quarantine properly. Yeah, And it's not just crypto. There are other things, too. Um, but I think some of those aspects is you have to have a willingness and ability to watch your animals and grow. Um, it's not just about keeping and breeding the animals. You have to understand that animal and watch and monitor things, which I think is a challenge for a lot of people that are moving into colubrids, um, especially from other taxa, just because there is a lot to learn. Um,
0: definitely one, one challenge that I have is the damn things are minuscule, when they come out of an egg, yeah. <laughs> like you have this dainty little thing and there's, you know, that's one of the reasons why false water cobras are among my favorite. Cause there's nothing dainty about them when they pop out <laughs> of an egg, they're boa size and they're, you know, first meals of fuzzy, maybe even a rat pink, but like the, the palture that hatched out or the, with, that I have, or the eye or I even, I even hatched out mad mad cats, Madagascar cat eyed snakes. Mm-hmm. And shit. They're just tiny. And, and it's difficult to get the tiny little thing to eat. It's also can be difficult to keep the tiny little thing in something because it's tiny. They're little escape artists. Uh, I bought a rack. I got a bunch of um, Mexican hognose snakes. Oh, I have those too. Uh, <laughs> and um, I, I bought this rack and I thought, there's no way that they're going to be able to get out of that little three millimeter tall gap between the tub and the rack. And I put them in there and I was, I went downstairs. Uh, my son's bedroom is the quarantine, by the way. And I was watching TV with my wife and I thought, why did you even think that they would stay in there? Like go back up there. And sure enough, I went back up there. <laughs> and I caught them before they, they, they were, you know, ended up in the ether of the house, but there were three little Kennerly heads staring at me. Cause they could just, you know, they, they're just, very good at getting out um that's something that i actually think is is unique to us is that these things when they come out are tiny like those baby broadbanded water snakes all over that cage that had vents um like i said i have a very tolerant wife we found two scuttling across the the living room floor which is right next to where my office where the where the animals are so that that small size and then you couple small size with pathogens and trying to rear these things um and then they got this surface to body ratio thing going on where if you don't keep them wet enough or offer them enough moisture they dehydrate and die so like i think that establishing them once they hatch is a even corn snakes can be a pain in the ass and they're like a beginner snake uh i know joe feeling captain Corn snake was giving away kits to families and, 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 he, and he talks about how he didn't like giving them away until they were like six months old and they got past that stupid little baby phase that, that is unique to, to colubrids. And then another thing that I have is that the, the, the short tail pythons and the false water cobras living in my garage have completely different metabolisms. The eight foot long falsy is going to lay two toddler sized dumps in the course of the week. And the short tails might go to the bathroom once every two months. Like, so it's just the maintenance aspect. These are not snakes that you can normally just kind of hit them. If you have a large collection, I don't think it's possible to only check up on them once a week. Um, No, no, no. You you can't do that. Uh, They're just going to be crapping everywhere. And you're going to be dealing with a fly outbreak, which the forward flies lead to the crypto spread. I mean, it's just like, so... One of the things I like about them is that challenge associated with them, which is just everything about them is faster and a little bit more intense. Now, granted, they're not as intense as a 20-foot retick, but at the same time, you know, I like the fact – I actually like the challenge associated with colubrids in that you kind of have to stay on it, that this isn't a group that you can just kind of arbitrarily have and it even get to a point of an afterthought. If you have a large collection and it's an afterthought, they're all dead. Well, <laughs> That's and- what's happening. It, it's also interesting, too, because with it,
1: you have to keep an open mind to, mm-hmm. on top of it, because some of these animals don't start off on rodents. No, um, some start off on crickets, <laughs> some start off on fish, some start off on geckos, um, anoles, frogs, other snakes. So with some of that, it, you really do have to be prepared and well versed on the animal's biology and natural history before you do proceed some of it because mm-hmm. if you don't you'll end up talking about death too
0: as well yes yeah no i i, I that's definitely an aspect of it and it does seem like you know, the Boed peeps have um serpentavirus or nidovirus whatever you want to call it and we have that too uh in colubrid world, that's absolutely something that's been identified in, in corn snakes. Uh, there's a strain that's colubrid specific. But as far as like the pathogens, and we seem to keep coming back to this topic tonight, but it's an aspect that people don't talk about it, and we're going to talk about it, which is there are these medical challenges associated with these snakes. Uh, I, I you know, After dealing with the crypto scare, it seems like once a year, either here at the university or at my house, everything will, will kind of systematically stop going off of food and then i'll get one regurgitation and it's like full-blown ptsd like boom oh god what's going on and then it's just because there was a cold front that moved through or it it was you know some little microclimate thing went through uh that's a uniquely colubrid keeper thing because these things eat they have fast metabolisms and and if, if you don't get them eating it's not like you can wait for long periods of time they're they're a group that not that i'm promoting shoving a tube down their throat and pumping pinkies down in there but if you go for most colubroids and colubrids if you go month and a half two months without them eating that's a problem whereas except with for
1: japanese forest yeah, rat
0: snakes except for those guys <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and that's the thing there's exceptions to everything but bowed people go two months without a meeting it's okay if it's established if it's a neonate that's a little different but you know what i'm saying so
1: anywho. no i mean it, it it's just one of those things you it, I think it needs to be properly discussed. Um, I think we'll learn a lot about a number of different species as we go through this too. And I, I hope it brings a lot of interest in terms of keeping some of these new species because it the only thing it can do is make us better keepers in the hobby. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So I got you know, we asked each other to come up with a question that the other one didn't know was coming. Mine is a is a softball under Hand pass kind of thing but it isn't at the same time which you know it's one of those go down rabbit hole things but do you have a favorite colubrid Whew. or calubroid.
1: so out of everything that i have my favorite is the file snakes really if i could, if I could keep one species only it would be the file snakes I
0: was not expecting. I thought it was going to be for- porphyracia for cockside no, for sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. The files would be
1: the number one. And really? The reason why. That's cool. Is the-, the females especially get to such a large size. Um, we don't necessarily see those animals brought in as wild caught animals. And if they do, they don't last very long. But what I have found very interesting about that specific group is. They never bite. Really? Um, hmm. Extremely docile, even when they're healthy animals. Um, you, you know, because if they were sick, they're really not going to try to do anything. Mm-hmm. But they are very unique and very social when handling. Um, Interesting. I think, that's, I think that's why we're starting to see a lot of people picking up more commonly uh, wild-caught animals. And there's been a lot of questions on that. Mm-hmm. um but they are such an interesting animal because of their keeled scales mm-hmm. the way that their head is actually structured um they are rodent eaters i to be honest i think they're just a very generic feeding animal that's pretty bad um, so cuz i've offered them pieces of tilapia um, mm-hmm. chicken just like stuff to, like from feeding crebos that i would have left over and Watching them, there is so much we can learn about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is what makes them so interesting because for years they've always been identified as a garbage snake. Really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the only reason they're even or were exported from Africa is purely because of the fact that they were a byproduct of the ball python trade. Mm-hmm. You've got to take a thousand ball pythons and these hundred snakes and this and that um, and they never did well in captivity and it's it, I think it's awesome to see people gaining such an interest off of them because they do extremely well as captives um, they grow very fast and they handle ex- incredibly well um, they don't run huh. don't squirm run um, and they have black, musk like jet black <laughs> <Hot> musk. damn <laughs> okay <laughs> like, wow like, you get musk i've never seen that <laughs> oh mm-hmm. man and it it smells like just burnt rubber um mm-hmm. just like mullendorf eyes is bright red uh-huh. and you can't get it off your hands anything um makes it very interesting when you
0: go to the grocery store after getting musk. i got you yeah so, so i see them you know everybody sees those things on social media And they end up in Instagram, and then we've got filters in Instagram, so we can kind of tweak colors out. (laughs) But you know, I I have—do are they as purple as they appear to be in those pictures? I've seen—I saw some at a local show, and they were imported. And I actually contemplated, and I was like, "Yeah, they're a little bit too far gone." Uh, But there was definitely a purple hue there, Mm -hmm. and ever since I saw those animals, I was like, "Well." You know, if they were in captivity and they were born here in in human care and raised up, they don't have that unfortunate import look. I thought maybe. but I also thought we're definitely increasing the like hue a little bit on those picks. so what's the what's the deal with that?
1: So the cape files definitely do have a nice purple undertone. That's pretty. Awesome. Um, the cross eye or forest files, I think that there's actually a couple of different localities that we're seeing. Um, Oh, cool. Because I've had jet black ones. I've had gray ones. I've had purple ones. Um, Not as purple as the capes themselves, but I do think we're seeing either some locality traits or population traits for that matter. Um, I don't think they're two different uh, species Mm -hmm. um, because often with the file snakes themselves. You'll see people advertising poensis and Mm cross-eye. And what they really have is um, (laughs) cross-eye. Because poensis have such a narrow head and they're elusive gecko eaters. Um, Oh, gotcha. I've had them. They're pain. I will never go down that road again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) stay away. um, But it's interesting because... Like we were talking even too. I mean, I think we're going to learn a lot about different populations as well as, and that's the cool part about locality, Mm -hmm. because the reality of it is, is locality information. The only value that even brings to this whole hobby is to be able to look up where those animals are found, look at weather patterns, rainfall, and learn how to cycle the animals properly saying that the animal is pure locality from this area, pure locality from this area. um, We're really taking word of mouth at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we we see it all the time in the king snake community. And it's interesting to me from looking at Mandarin rat snakes um, that a lot of people that were breeding them over the years are now, they went from just Mandarin rat snakes to now having locality mandarins. So what happened in like
0: that 10 years? Yeah. But they're no the same clue. animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, well, that, that's an aspect of colubrids that I, I do like, because we do have several groups where locality is a thing. You know, ob- the, the, the obvious kind of extreme to that would be Grey Bands, Alterna, things like that, where you know, as a biologist, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, and I hope I'm not pissing in someone's Wheaties. Like, but when you have a road and... one side of the road is one locality and then the other side of the road, 15 feet, you know, different locality. I get it. The snakes may not cross the road that often, but all it takes is one. One animal to cross that road in a decade and get the genes from one side of the the road to the other. It's all irrelevant. So, anyway. But you can't have that, you know, pretty phenotype. All that kind of good stuff. But no, the the locality stuff, I love that stuff. Uh, It is difficult to Isolate that down. If you have an imp- importation, though, um, I know with my typhless that that I'm working with, it just says surname, uh, and and the reality of that is I was keying out one of the animals that I have, and there's three subspecies to typhless, and the the you know I, I was I was getting a result that was not the best because the the head scalation was indicative of an animal from Brazil, and we shouldn't be getting animals from Brazil. Um, a totally different subspecies than what was in Suriname, but I don't know, you know, I'm not a expert on those guys. I just wanted to know what the hell I had because I didn't want to be breeding or attempting to breed one subspecies to another. And they weren't going to be copacetic because they could very well be species. That's a group of snakes. That's not really been studied to death. So, um, yeah, but no, the locality, you can go down rabbit holes real quick with that stuff.
1: Real quick. Um, um, Mm mm-hmm. I mean, we we had that discussion with Kevin and the rest of the yeah. group, too, with, with Porphyracia. Um th- There's a lot to learn. There's Tons a lot to learn. we can value from it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the benefits of even getting wild-caught animals is learning mm-hmm. some of that information. Yep. Um, but so my question to
0: you yes. is, oh, why the
1: hell crayfish,
0: man? <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's a great question. All right, I can answer this question. There's probably quite a few people that are like, yeah, why the hell crayfish? It actually is a, it's a very, it's a, uh, what I, my advisor at Marshall, who was basically like a second grandfather to me, Dr. Polly, for anybody that knows him, he's a salamander biologist. So I'm not a snake guy, but definitely he's well known in the salamander world. Uh, I was in grad school in, 2003 through 2005 at Marshall. And when I was there, I had like the dream position in the lab, which was I I had a research assistantship. I didn't have a teaching assistantship and I was essentially Polly's grunt. So he had some, some um, grants that weren't affiliated with anyone's student. And it was my job to run those grants. In fact, one of them on salamanders should have probably been my thesis, but I, I was dumb and stubborn and it was like I'm going to do the hognose snake and we all know how that turned out. Um, but I I had this project where I had to uh, there, were, there were two key events that happened. The first event was we were studying Ambystomatid salamanders, so mole salamanders. Uh, and we were trying to find one that is really common actually in Indiana, uh in Kentucky and places like that, but it's super rare in West Virginia. It's a smallmouth salamander, Ambystoma texanum. And this animal comes out in February and early March when there's like snow on the ground still. And it goes into vernal pools and it basically you know, it breeds and then goes back to crayfish burrows, root cavities, all that kind of stuff. And then you don't see them again for the rest of the year. So you got this really narrow window of time to catch them. And so my job was to set minnow traps from Huntington, West Virginia, which is all the way down on the West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio border, all the way up here to where I live in the Northern panhandle between Pennsylvania and Ohio, the entire Ohio river floodplain and basically determine where the salamanders were and then the density of the salamanders. And so we, I had over 200 minnow traps in vernal pools from one part of the the state to the other. And I was basically going every weekend or every other weekend and driving from Huntington to home. It was real convenient because I could just drive to my parents' house and then spend the night and then drive back down and hit half of the trap lines on the way up and half the trap lines on the way down. And you get bycatch. So I was getting spotted salamanders, leopard frogs, which were rare in West Virginia, pickerel frogs, wood frogs, all kinds of things. And I kept getting these crayfish. And I knew, you know, I, I looked at the crawdads and they were totally different than any crayfish that I'd ever caught before. They didn't look like the crayfish in a creek. They didn't look like the crayfish that are in the little streams where we were catching salamanders. And they were just pugnacious as hell. And a a common theme to Zach Loafman liking animals is if it wants to kill me, I love it. And the fact that these little things were scrappy and uh, they actually gurgled, they made noises when I pulled them out of the bucket. And I just found them to be incredibly endearing um, little things, but I'm going to grad school for herpetology. So, you know, I can't possibly like, like crayfish. And at the same time, another one of the graduate students had a, Thesis where they had set up what's called a drift fence around a pond that had a really rare salamander in it. Um, and <laughs> what ended up happening was there was a big rain event, and the salamanders moved to the ponds, and these crayfish moved to the ponds at the same time. And salamanders plus crayfish in a bucket equals salamander pate. And so my fellow grad student came into the lab one infamous morning. And she had a five gallon bucket and the lid was like pounded down on top of it. And she came in and she basically slammed this bucket down on my desk. And my job in the lab, I love to identify any animal. It doesn't matter what it is. Like I went through a leech phase where I was identifying leeches just because nobody could. <laughs> so like, you know, I love keying things out. I love getting in the old field guy. Like that's my bread and butter. And she slammed this bucket down. And, and she said like, what the F are these f and things and then stormed out. And, you know, I, I'm hearing like this noise in the bucket. I'm like, what the hell's in the bucket? I don't know what's in the bucket. So <laughs> I, you know, open up the bucket and there's 50 of these same crayfish that I've been finding up along the Ohio river and they all, you know, rear their claws up or keely up. And you know, I was like, all right, I got to figure what the hell these things are. So that's all happening. At the same time, my advisor sat down with me, and and, and we actually drove from the New River back to Marshall. And at that point in time, the timing is very important because this is the early 2000s. This is when Jeff Corwin, Steve Irwin, Mark O'Shea, everybody's on Animal Planet and reptiles are hot. Like they had infiltrated pop culture. There were all kinds of people that were actually going to school to be herpetologists. Herpetologists weren't, that was not a common job back in the day. And everybody in the early 2000s, it was actually, that's when it it wasn't like you weren't the outcast if you wanted to be a herpetologist. It was something that people wanted to be. And my advisor, was, we were talking and he said to me like, Zach, I I, I know you love your herps, but I've been watching you and you just nerd out over everything. It doesn't matter what the hell it is. If it's creepy, crawly, if it doesn't have fur, it doesn't have feathers, you're going to, to enjoy it. So keep the herps as you're like, Hobby, avocation, or sorry, not avocation, but like something you're interested in, but find a group of animals where there aren't that many people that study them, and you can still nerd out and have, you know, the best time ever. And so while this crayfish thing's happening, kind of on the side, I'm trying to find another organismal group so that I can, like, have a paycheck and feed my family when I get done with all this graduate school. <laughs> and uh, because at the the other thing that kind of made me jump from herpetology to to crayfishes was there was a job that opened up in Pennsylvania and um, it was to study massasauga rattlesnakes and it was a tech position and it was only for six months. And I thought, you know, I looked at it and I think it was for like 10 grand or something. And I applied and I contacted the, the people that had the job and I was talking with them. I got to know them. And I said, so how many people applied for that job? And they're like, Oh, we have about 300 applicants. And about 40 PhDs. And I was like, how the hell am I going to get a job as a herpetologist if there's 30 freaking PhDs applying for this position? So I dabbled with the crayfish. And then as time went on at Marshall, I started finding out that I was spending way more time reading about the crayfish and nerding out about the crayfish. And I kind of took it upon myself. There was a book called The Crayfish of West Virginia. um, And I took it and went out across the state when I would do my herping stuff for Polly and I I found myself like, "Oh, there's a Creek I haven't gone to. So I would, you know, go look for whatever frog or salamander he sent me out to see or find. But then I was in the river on the way home, finding the crawdads, adding those to my life list. So, uh, it, it, wasn't, it was, it also was very lucrative for me because crawdads are about the same size as a frog or salamander and all the methods I had learned to study the ecology of frogs and salamanders were directly applicable to crayfish and when i was looking at what people had done scientifically nobody really studied the natural history and ecology of crayfishes what people did is they used them as a model organism in a stream ecosystem but nobody really studied them for them and my my jam my v- my bag is natural history i like to figure out the who what when where why of an animal my hero scientifically is an is a herpetologist that was at the university of kansas his name was dr fitch henry s fitch i love his studies and i thought well hell you know fitch did all this stuff for snakes no one's done this approach for crayfishes it's known as autocology. so I, why don't i just do that and um it was the best decision i ever could have made because now i have you know i'm here at west liberty i've got a crayfish conservation lab that has a I don't even know how many grad students. I think we're pushing 10, if not 10, graduate students in the lab. have got tons of funding, um, and I've been able to make a name for myself, and there really wasn't much competition. If I tried to do the exact same thing in herpetology, it's like cutthroat. You, you have to be aggressive. I'm not saying that herpetologists don't get along. They're, they're great, wonderful people, um, but it's just a totally different vibe. I could not do what I do as a conservation biologist at West Liberty, if I studied snakes. Um, You've been hanging out
1: with too many ethologists, man. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. No, no. fish people and I, <laughs> we get along. But I can say that in the aquatic ecology world, crayfish biologists are the redhead stepchildren. Like, there's literally none of us. When when there's when, um, I am the youngest, uh, I'm trying to think of the people I work with. And we all get along. That's the other thing that, about crayfishes. Uh, there were some aspects when I was in the herpetology world where uh, people were kind of... Ego matters. And I don't like that. That's not me. And in the crayfish world, you are like an uber nerd. If you're going to dedicate your life to a freaking crustacean. So you have no ego. Um, and we all just kind of get along. And like I said, I, I think there's like maybe a dozen people in the U S we, we had the international astacology. That's the science of crayfish. Um, because astacus is the genus of crayfishes in uh, Europe. We had the International Astacology Association meeting in Pittsburgh. And This is the entire world. Um, that meeting for herpetology has hundreds of people at it. This meeting we didn't breach a hundred. In the like on seven billion people, there's not a hundred people that go to this meeting. That's how small this field is. And I absolutely love it though because it's a super tight knit community. We all get along. We all collaborate. So yeah, that that's why crayfish and. Crayfishes and herps are linked. Like burrowing crayfishes create habitat that's utilized by massasaugas, crawfish frogs. Yeah, you know, Yeah, you don't have those. Yeah, you know, Clonophis, Kirtlandi, the Kirtland yeah. snake. You don't have those animals without crayfish. So I can kind of have my cake and eat it too because uh, I've got a whole subset of research that we're doing here at the university. It has nothing to do with herpetoculture. It's, you know, natural history for the sake of natural history. But one of the research angles that I like is um, crayfish – Herp interaction. So, we've been studying queen snakes, uh, Regina septemvittata. You know, this is an animal that's a dietary specialist on not just crayfish, but softshell crayfish. Less than a mile from where I'm sitting, we have a thriving population of Regina. So, you know, I've been studying those with undergrads, and now I've had one graduate student do a thesis on them. I've done, uh, I have a new incoming student that's going to be we're actually gonna be getting radio transmitters and tracking them and really kind of diving into their ecology. So crayfish enabled me to jump back into herpetology, which is, you know, pretty damn awesome. So that's, that's why crayfish. And then I guess the final thing is I never thought that I would name new species. Like that was not something I thought I would do. Um, Because there's so few people studying crawdads. One of the biggest problems I run into is I'll go into a stream in like Tennessee and I'll be sampling the animals, and they don't have freaking names. Do you know how hard it is to explain to somebody what something's doing if it doesn't have a name? So, you know, I was kind of thrown in the deep end of systematics and had to learn evolution and taxonomy and the process of naming things and then genetics. I, I, I'm in the, I'm a field guy. I am not a bench guy. But to name these taxa, I had to learn phylogenetics. So, um, you know, when, when new species descriptions come out for snakes, I'm – Due to the fact I'm doing this stuff with crawdads, I can read the snake description and kind of figure out the validity or or lack thereof. And I will say one thing. The crayfish taxonomists of the world, we sure do have larger sample sizes than those snake people. (laughs) 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 I name a new species, and I looked at like 60 to 90 specimens if I can. There's snake taxa being described recently based off of a sample size of six animals. Uh, So – yeah, but don't get me started on that rant. So, yeah, no, you asked no, no, a question. We went... You asked a question at the end that could have added forty-five minutes to this thing. So, <laughs> yeah. but no, that is the. Well, I, I think at some point it answer. might even
1: be interesting to even go down the road of. Oh, um, we will higher education even too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure we have some younger viewers that mm-hmm. would be interested in how do you pursue this. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Especially since you and I, we both went down this different yeah. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's more than one ways more than one way to skin this cat so that is for sure okay well i think that's that's a good place to end it how about you we good i think so i mean if you listen to this whole thing obviously write us an email (laughs) yes (laughs) Yeah. yeah so this is our first time signing off and in future episodes it'll be more polished uh but we're gonna give it a go so thank you if you made it to this point um can't wait to do more episodes with Calubrid and Calubroid Radio. We are part of the Marillia Python network, and I don't even know how many podcasts there are now. Um, but if you found us, you've almost certainly found them. And in the future, we'll be listing off all of those podcasts as well. And yeah, that's all I have. You have anything else, Matt? No, I think this was a lot of fun, guys, and we hope you enjoy our evolution in this <laughs> podcasting realm here. Yes. So thank you all and have a great day. Later.